Well, good morning, church. It's, these are the uh, ones that like to sleep in, hey? <laughs> excellent, excellent. That's all right. Hey, I trust you're enjoying going through this series on Hebrews at the moment, hopefully um, as much as I've been enjoying it. As Dave said at the start, this is a very rich sermon letter. Uh, there's a lot of meat on this bone, to steal Dave's phrase from a previous series. And indeed, the this uh, chapter talks about how we need to move on from the milk that we've been that that uh, well, for the Hebrews that it was addressed to that they've been consuming and move on to some more meaty stuff. And so today, I hope we're going to be able to all enjoy getting into that. We've seen when Dave introduced the series that he t- talked about basically this book is a book that declares the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus Christ. It introduces him as the very radiance of God, the image, the very imprint of his image, just like a ring that gets pressed into a, um, a wax on an envelope in the olden days to mark the person's seal, to say, this is my image, this is Jesus the Messiah, God himself, come incarnate as man. And so we see that he is supreme in chapter one, verses two, uh, chapter 1 and 2. He is superior to the angels. He is superior to the Torah. The Torah was a message given by angels, it tells us in Deuteronomy. But Jesus is a message given by God himself. And so it warns us, heed the Messiah's message. In chapter 3 and 4, Dave talked about the entering of God's rest. And that Israel were delivered from the land of Egypt to enter into God's rest. But what did they do? They rebelled. They had the very presence of God leading them and they rebelled. They hardened their hearts towards him. And so the warning is, when you hear the message of God, do not rebel but walk in obedience so that you may enter his rest once and for all. And Jesus is that superior rest that doesn't just last for just a lifetime but lasts for all eternity. If we could grasp that with our minds, we'd be on the floor just in awe, worshipping our Saviour, wouldn't we? And today we are continuing on with the theme of the superiority of Jesus as we look at the priesthood. By way of introduction, because priesthood, priest is, it's a bit of a foreign concept to us in 2020 Adelaide Baptist Church circles. A bit of a strange thing, we don't generally go to a priest to get sacrifices done for us. But let me put it to you this way. See, my role is that of a, well, for the past 12 months, it's been to be a paediatric anaesthetist working at the Children's Hospital. And it's an awesome job. I absolutely love it. And throughout the day-to-day interactions that I have, you get to witness some really fascinating things go on. You see, each day, parents bring their child in to the hospital Now, it may be because the child's gotten really sick, developed some sort of infection, an appendicitis, or perforated a bowel, had a trauma being hit off their bike, or something like that, developed cancer. Something has gone wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. And the parents are unable to do what needs to be done for the child. And so they take them, they bring them into hospital. Typically, they'll go through emergency, they'll get um, a number of x-rays or CT scans, they'll have some blood tests taken. Until they come to the point where the surgeon comes to them and says, listen, I'm really sorry, but we have to tell you, your child has a condition that needs surgery to fix it. And that is the only way we are going to be able to to make this better for them. 
And so they go through the consent, tell them everything that could possibly go wrong, um, as does the anaesthetist. And, and then the parents sign away and say, okay, I'm going to commit this child into your care to do what needs to be done. And so once that decision's been made, they'll take them up into level three, Rogerson Theatre, and they'll put on a gown and they'll wait anxiously while they hear kids carrying on in recovery next door, screaming away, thinking, oh, what's going on in there? <laughs> Other kids might be running around, pushing cars around, making a rocket, and then their time comes. And we walk in and we take them, and as the anaesthetist, it's my job to put them off to sleep. Now, often if the kid's small enough, I'll get the, the parent to sit on a seat and have the child sitting on their lap. And I'll get my little gas mask, turn on the anaesthetic machine, and just slowly get them to take some deep breaths in while I tell them a little story or perhaps torment them with some of my singing or my bad dad jokes. And breath by breath, the child becomes sleepier and sleepier. Sometimes I'll say some really funny stuff and the, the parent will have a little bit of a giggle. And as they're drifting off to sleep, the body gets heavier and heavier. They go through the squeaky phase where their breathing becomes a bit more um, squeaky because it becomes a little bit more obstructed from um, the loss of airway tone. And we reassure the parent that this is all very normal and um, get them to stand up and place their baby, their little child on the bed. And it's at that point in time that the vast majority of parents lose it. They just start breaking down and crying and like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't know what's come over me. We reassure them and say, look, it's very normal. Um, get the volunteer to show them out and they, they walk out what I call the corridor of tears because almost all the parents that walk down there after having seen their child become so helpless, become so vulnerable. And they, they realize that all of a sudden they cannot do anything to help this child. It is entirely in the care of the medical team. And so if I were to define what a priest is, I would define it this way. A priest is somebody who does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. So what would possess a parent to take their precious child, their child that they've reared from a little baby, that they've looked after, that they've put band-aids on the knees, that have stayed up late when they've been sick and given them Panadol and whatnot? to take this child into a hospital, to hand them over, to lay them down on that theatre bed, completely hopeless, is that they realise that they have a problem that they cannot possibly fix themselves. And so they go to the, to the surgeon, they go to the medical team, and they say, can you do this on my behalf and bring healing to this child? Much the same way the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, they had a role where they were required specific qualifications they had to be of the tribe of Levi. They had to be without defects. They had to be descendants of Aaron. They were taught from a very young age all the um, scriptural requirements for the priesthood, all the laws that had to be kept and all the sacrifices that were made in order to atone for the sins of the people. And so you could say the law was essentially their diagnostic tool. The sacrifices were their treatment. But as we see, as we dive into the book of Hebrews, all was not well with the priesthood. There was a problem with the priesthood. So if you've got your Bibles, feel free to open. We're going to have a, a, a bit of a, a feast on the scripture this morning. You can open up to Hebrews chapter 5, where the author of Hebrews says, 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself, the priest, is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And further on in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 11, he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For, in verse 18, he goes on, On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. You see, there is a problem with the priesthood. The problem is that the priests are sinful, that the priests themselves are temporary, they die, they come and go, and that their sacrifices ultimately, the writer says, are useless. To articulate this problem even clearer, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no one, nobody, ever, throughout all of history, is justified. So the question that I hear you all screaming at me is, well, if the Mosaic law, which was administered by the Aaronic priesthood, is so useless, why on earth did God give it to us in the first place? What's the whole point? When there's a fair chunk of scripture taken up with this. To which Paul, anticipating this in Galatians, says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. Therefore, in verse 24, he says, the law has become our tutor or our schoolmaster or our disciplinarian or guardian. Four different versions that translate it in this way. To lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by what? Not, not by the works of the law, but by faith. You see, if it were to go on with the medical analogy, you could say the law is the radiology department. It's the scanner that shows us what is going on on the inside of us. Now, how does it work like that? Well, let's take, for example, let's do the MRI of the Ten Commandments and put ourselves through the scanner and have a look and just think, okay, what does this leave me when I come to stand before a holy, righteous, consuming God? Because the Ten Commandments were given because Israel had a problem, right? They were in Egypt under slavery from Pharaoh. God used Moses to miraculously deliver them. And then he said, I'm going to lead you as this pillar of fire by night and this pillar of cloud by day. And I'm going to dwell in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle. The very presence of God had come down. Now, that sounds nice until you realize that when they saw the presence of God, they were all on their faces going, woe is us, we are going to die. And so God called Moses up to Mount Sinai and said, okay, I'm going to give you some commandments, I'm going to give you the law, 
This is what you need to do if you are going to be in my presence. This is how you can become ritually sanctified or purified. And so he gave them these Ten Commandments. And of course, what happened when Moses came down? They were already breaking the Second Commandment. They'd made a graven image of a calf. And they were bowing down and saying, this is the God that delivered us out of Egypt. Can you imagine that? I mean, I'd call that blasphemy as well, so breaking the fourth commandment right there. And you know what? Something that we do in the West, in particular, is we love to make gods in our own image. We say things like, well, the God that I believe in wouldn't send people to hell for this. Well, the God that I believe in wouldn't. And we insert our own idea of what we think God should be instead of allowing him to show us who he is through his written, inspired word. And that's called idolatry. And that is something that we all do to some degree. And it's something that is prevalent throughout our society. We're, people are happy to think of that there is a God, that there is a creator, but not that he is going to be holy and just and righteous and judge us for breaking his law, as he has told us. Take, say, the sixth commandment. Yeah? So, do not murder well, just in case any of us are sitting here thinking, oh, great, I haven't murdered anyone. I can give, get a big tick of approval for that one. Jesus says, you know what? You feel hate towards somebody in your heart, you've murdered them. And in Hebrews it says, like, we all lie naked and open before him. He knows what's going on in our heart, and that is what he cares about. Going on with that, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you so much as look at somebody lustfully, you have committed adultery. And we know with the prevalence of porn that's out there, many, many people are guilty of it. That makes us adulterers. That makes us blasphemers, idolaters. Have you ever told a lie? The ninth commandment. Well, that's another scan that says, oh, big lesion happening right here in my liver. I've lied. I'm a liar. The tenth commandment. Do not covet. I mean, our whole advertising um, marketing industry is based on getting us to want what we don't have, isn't it? It's designed to just keep pressing and pressing and say, you deserve it, you deserve something better. And to look at our neighbours and to want more and more and more. And the Bible says, hey, that's coveting. You need to be grateful and satisfied with the blessings that God has given us and not have our desire for those things. That's what, um, why Cain ended up killing Abel. And so as we run through this MRI scanner of the Ten Commandments, the idea of it is that it leaves us standing before God. Well, we shouldn't be standing. We should be on our faces going, woe is me, I'm a guilty sinner, riddled to the core with death. And that is, a, that is the design of the law, to leave nobody standing, standing up before God and saying, no worries, I've got no problems with you judging me according to my works. That's fine, I'll be right, I'll come on right through. Because that is, not it. that is not the case. The Bible says, um, in Romans chapter 7, it says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that, I, that promised life, that I thought, if I keep these things, I will live, actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me and so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good we can all agree it's good not to lie it's good not to commit adultery it's good not to murder it's good to worship God 
We all agree with those things, but how many of us actually keep those things? And if we think that we're doing all right because we only fall in one or two, James says, actually, you break the law, you are a lawbreaker, period. You are guilty of breaking all of it. Did that which is good then bring death to me? God, why did you give me this law if it's only going to kill me? By no means, Paul says emphatically, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. To carry on with the medical analogies, and forgive me for this, but it's kind of like the idea is to have, you've got a CT scanner on my right here. You can see in the liver the, the positive arrow sign. That's a tumour. That's a cancer in the liver. You can tell because it's slightly discoloured, not quite the same as the rest of the colour of the liver, and the liver's a homogenous organ, so it should all look the same colour and texture. But it's not terribly obvious there. You take that very same patient, pop a cannula in, give them a whole lot of radionuclear isotope, and then run them through a PET scanner, and all of a sudden you have it lighting up like a bright Christmas light on the, on the uh, left in that PET scanner. And Paul is saying, this is the purpose of the law. We all know deep down in our hearts, in our conscience, our God-given conscience, this moral law that to kill somebody is wrong, that to take their stuff is wrong, that to lust after things is wrong. But then, if that weren't enough, if that, that's kind of like the CT scanner, Paul says, God gave us the law so it might become exceedingly obvious that we are all in the same boat. We are all utterly condemned under the law when we, when we um, assess our life according to that standard. So the, that, and that is the exact idea. Yet, when I talk to people about, you know, why I'm a Christian, why I, you know, why I believe in Christ, and why actually it's, it's not a prideful thing to become a Christian, to, to say, you know, I follow Jesus, because what it's saying is, I can't do it on my own. Most people, when they think and they say, well, you know, if God is real and I'm judged by him, that's fine, because... I'm a good person. I'll, I think he'd, he'd let me in. Because they think, you know, Hitler, now he was a bad guy. Like he murdered a whole lot of people, right? Stalin, yeah, pretty bad guy. CEOs of big mega corporations, they've all got these sinister plots going on. You know, I'm not as bad as those guys. And they must make the mistake of comparing themselves according to other people instead of comparing ourselves to God's holy and perfect and righteous law. And that's kind of like saying, well, look, you know, I may just have a, a really small tumour on my liver, but look at me. I'm, I'm fit. I'm fine. I'm well. I'll be fine. But that person over there, you know, who's got this big fungating tumour coming off their head, they're in trouble. They're the ones that need, need you know, a, a surgeon. They're the ones that need a high priest that can cure this. And they make that tragic misdiagnosis that allows the tumour to grow and eventually result in the death that Paul talks about in Romans 7. And so, the idea of the law is to show that there is a problem with the priesthood. It cannot make us right. To leave us, like Paul writes in the end of chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Enter the priesthood of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 5 verse 5 it continues, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications as a priest with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There is a problem with the priesthood, and Jesus is the only answer to that problem. So who is this Melchizedek, and why on earth is Jesus a priest of the order of Melchizedek, you might be asking. Well, he shows up for three verses. Three verses, that's it, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. So what's, what's happened is Abraham, or Abram as he was still at that time, was living um, not too far from Lot, his nephew, who was still living in Sodom. Now, there were four kings and there were five kings. They both had an, an alliance each and they decided to go to war against each other. Lot and the king of Sodom and the other kings that he was with basically got their butts whipped and lost. They were taken captive all the riches and people and slaves, servants, taken captive by these other kings. Abram heard about this and being a pretty well-off guy with his own personal little private army of over 300 dudes, gets together and says, we are going to go and we're going to rescue my cousin. No one messes with my family, my nephew, sorry. And so he goes and he fights these kings, beats them, takes, takes all the loot, gives it back to the other kings and as he's travelling back, what happens? This, this crazy character, Melchizedek, rocks up and, he's, and it says in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Which I find fascinating because there was no Aaronic priesthood at that time. In fact, the covenant with Abraham hadn't even been made. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. This was a pretty supernatural thing. God just fighting through Abram with his 300 plus men. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. Now, Hebrews chapter 7 goes on and expands a whole lot more detail that we haven't got on Melchizedek. It says that... Um, he was the king of righteousness. So Melchizedek in the Hebrew means king of righteousness. Melch is king and Zadik is like righteousness or saintliness. Does that remind you of anybody? The king of Salem or king of Shalom, the king of peace, is his other name. Now it tells us that he was a high priest. So he was a kingly high priest. Now the role of the king was to represent God to the people. The role of the priest was to represent the people to God. And so in this character Melchizedek and in the order of Melchizedek, we have this unique role where he's the perfect intermediary between God and people and people and man. He's able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It tells us that he was without father or mother or genealogy, that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. 
And that he was superior to Abram in that he was the one blessing Abram because the superior one offers the blessing and he received the tithe from Abram. And it, it says in essence it was kind of like the tribe of Levi offering the tithe up to the order of Melchizedek, showing that the order of Melchizedek is superior to that of the Aaronic priesthood, of the Levitical priesthood. And that's significant because it tells us that Jesus was no mere afterthought. Jesus didn't just come along because, well, we tried the law, fat lot of good that did, turned out to be pretty useless, let's, let's make uh, plan B, another order of priesthood, we'll try that. No, 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 this was planned from the beginning. Later on in chapter 7, verse 11 to 28, the author does a whole lot of comparison and contrasting of the Aaronic priesthood with the Melchizedek priesthood, of which Jesus was the example. He shows that the Aaronic priesthood is inferior because they've got to sacrifice for their own sins, whereas Jesus actually became the sacrifice. The Aaronic priests were weak. They were... Um, not, they were sinners, whereas Jesus was perfect. The Aaronic priesthood was called by God. Jesus is God. The Aaronic priesthood didn't actually make anything perfect. But Jesus, well, he became the author of eternal salvation. They were many. He was one. They entered a man-made building made out of tents and animal clothing and then the temple after that. Whereas Jesus entered the Holy of Holies once and for all. They entered by means of animals' blood, but Christ, it was his own blood that covered him. His own perfect, sinless, flawless blood that allowed him to enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for us once and for all, to do for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves because the law was not able to do that. Thank you, guys. It's a good word, isn't it? That we are not reliant on ourselves. And he sums it up in this key verse in chapter 7, verse 24. He says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Picture that, guys. Right now, as we speak, we have a high priest who doesn't just kind of mildly care for us, shed his blood for us, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession on our behalf. You talk about the Holy of Holies in the temple where people were fearful to go, where one high priest once a year could go in after doing all this ritual cleansing. Jesus is in the very presence of God, interceding on our behalf. Let that just sink in for a moment. Picture that in your heads and be grateful. For he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First, Oh, sorry. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. These were the qualifications that the Levitical priesthood could never meet, but Jesus met in fullness. 
He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So what the author of Hebrews is trying to ram home time and time again on so many different levels is that this just isn't just a better priesthood. This is the superior priesthood. This is the way. This is the truth. This is the life. And he's the only one that is able to save us to the utmost. And so with this grand declaration of, first of all, we desperately need help. We have a problem that we cannot solve ourselves. We need a priesthood that is better than the works of the law. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that, the only way comes a great and grave warning in Hebrews chapter 6. And probably some of you have read that before and been very disturbed, being very, oh, this is, this is uncomfortable. And that's the idea. That's what the author's trying to do is make you a little bit uncomfortable and think, well, where do I stand in this? What, it, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to accept this? Am I going to walk in the path that God has called me to? Or am I going to go looking for another way? And if I could sum up the, the warning of Hebrews chapter 6, I'm not going to read through the whole lot um, now for the sake of time, but it would be this. In light of the superiority of Christ's priesthood, do not reject God's only provision of atonement for mankind. You see, if having come to Christ, the Hebrews this author um, was addressing the letter to, they were to then turn away and rely on their religion of works, then repentance would become impossible because salvation cannot be found anywhere else. I was in theatre earlier this week chatting with a vascular surgeon about a few funny different cases that he'd come across. And one that just stood out to me, and I thought, oh, this is brilliant, was this case. You see, vascular surgeons are the ones that do all the amputations generally because people get severe peripheral vascular disease, the clots in their arteries. If you don't have blood flow going to your legs or your arms, then they die. And if you leave it, then you die. So these guys have a lot of experience in knowing what needs operations and what, what will get by. And he was telling me about this patient who came with this severe foot infection, a little bit more than just a bit of an ingrown toenail or a little pimple that you could pop and um, be on your merry way. This was a big, swollen, pus-filled foot. And he said to the patient, he said, well, the answer is clear here. We need to take you to theatre, we need to anaesthetise you, and we need to get a scalpel, put a big cut through all, this, through all this tissue and let that pus get out. We need to wash it out, we need to soak it in betadine and just try to kill the infection as best we can. Because he knew one thing, if you've got a big collection of pus, antibiotics are not going to get to the core because there's no blood supply. Um, your own immune system isn't going to get to that core because your white cells can't get into the middle of the pus. And so the bacteria just keep replicating and replicating and replicating until the infection spreads all the way up your leg, you become septic and die. And so he tells his patient, you've got to come to theatre. And the patient goes, all right, I hear what you're saying, but I would rather just have a script of antibiotics, please. I don't want surgery. And you know, you laugh about that and you go, 
I mean, what's this guy thinking? Why wouldn't he trust this expert here to do that? But that is exactly what so many people do when it comes to accepting Jesus for salvation, when it comes to acknowledging that he is the only way. You see, we want it on our terms. We're happy to have heaven. We're happy to have all the blessings and salvation. We're happy to say, God, would you just give me a few tips, give me a few principles to live by that can make my life better and I can be a nice person to my neighbour, I can love them as myself and, you know, and we'll just see how we go that way without saying, God, your law, it kills me so that... I can come alive to you. Without being willing ourselves to hop up onto that theatre table and say, you know what, Lord? I've tried. I've, I've given it a red hot go. And as I go, as I go through your scanner, I see that I do not meet your perfect righteous requirements. And so I'm hopping up on this table and I'm saying, give me that anaesthetic. I'm willing to entirely and utterly trust my life into your care. Because I believe that you and you alone can do what must be done that I am unable to do. You are the great high priest. And so this guy, the surgeon, sort of pulling his hair out a bit and he's explaining, look, I've amputated a lot of feet in my time because people just took a script, went away, and it got worse and worse infected. And the guy said, look, I get it. I know it's your job. You just have to try to scare me so that you know, you'll get me on the table and you can operate. And he's like, no. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, listening to Dave's sermon last week, how he was talking about, um, I think it was, might have been Benji, who was running across the road, the 80 kilometre an hour road to get to Aaron. And Dave said, what are you doing? And he put the fear of God into him. Don't run across the road. And he's saying, there actually is a time for us to have a godly fear. There is a time for us to realise, if I don't get this dealt with, I am in big trouble. And this guy needed a whole lot more fear. But he rejected that because he wanted it done in his way and on his terms. To which the Bible unashamedly declares there is but one way to Christ, one way to heaven, and that is through Christ his Son. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what fate was awaiting him the following day, knowing that he was going to be nailed on the cross, that he was going to be whipped, that he was going to suffer beyond belief. Being fully human, being able to experience all the pain that a human body can possibly bear. He, he, he was sweating tears of blood and he cried out to God and he said, God, if there is any other way, take this cup from me, yet not my will but your will be done. And what was God's answer to him? God's answer was this. You are my son. You are the one who is sinless. You are the one who is able to do, the only one who is able to do for all of mankind what they cannot do for themselves. You are the perfect high priest, the one who can be sacrificed once and for all, the author of salvation. And so God's answer was an emphatic, yes, I will save my people by sending his son on the cross to die for us. And that is the love that the Father has for us. And so we, we can have the band come up. We're going to start, we're, we're going to have communion very shortly. And what communion is, is it's an acknowledgement saying, yes, I receive this sacrifice that Jesus 
has done for me. I partake of his body. I partake of the, the blood that he shed for me. That he would be the author of my salvation. You know, one of the, one of the funny things that happens sometimes in paediatric theatre is as a kid gets into the theatre, all of a sudden it gets real. They're having fun and games, playing with cars um, out in the holding bay, but once they get into the theatre and the doors close and they see the machine, they see the bed, they see everyone dressed up in scrubs, wearing masks and hats, and they realise, oh, this is a little bit scary. You know, I I had a kid the other day, actually. He did exactly that, walked in and went, touched the bed, looked at the machines and goes, no. I'm out of here. And he, he went to do a run. Fortunately, his mum caught him at the door and, and said, hey, listen. You know, he went to the right place. He was where he needed to be to get his appendicitis fixed that would otherwise, left alone, would otherwise have killed him. But how many of us do that? How many of us think, okay, I'm going to take that step and then pull back at just the wrong time? And I'm willing to put our life and our trust in the one who can save us. I want to say, if that's you today, may God challenge you. May God open your eyes. and May he convict you and show you that there is but one way to eternal life. And I want to encourage you. Speak to someone. Come down the front. Have a chat with me after the service or during communion. I would love nothing more than to pray with you and then to, then to see you receive the healing receive the salvation that only God can give. Because reality is we are all going to die one day. But God offers us the chance to live and to live forever. You know, my son broke his arm late last year and I took him to theatre. This was just before, like hours before I was due to fly out to Africa. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to go into theatre and wait and I'm going to miss my flight and this is going to be terrible. And so in the emergency department, they said, you know, do you think you'd be all right um, to, if we give it a bit of a crack and try to pull it back with just a bit of nitrous oxide? And I said, you know what? He will. And I said to Mike, I said, trust me, my friend, this is what I do each day for my work. I'm going to get you to breathe. We're going to do, do a bit of relaxing. And trust me, your arm's going to be okay. And do you know what he did? He didn't bolt out the door. He didn't run away. He said, okay, Dad, I know you've got this. And he was very happy. He sat there. I got him to breathe deep. I got him into that deeper plane. And then the orthopod just went. And it was all straight again. And I got off to my flight. (laughs) You know, there comes a certain peace. There comes a peace that surpasses understanding for us. No matter what sickness actually comes in this physical world, we can trust that God has got it beaten. God has conquered death. He is the only one to conquer death. And I at least have this hope when I see patients that are terminal, that I know are going to die, knowing that there is hope for them in Jesus Christ, knowing that even if the inevitable happens, which it will to every single one of us, there is hope that transcends understanding that Christ alone has conquered death and that Jesus, the great high priest, at that very moment that death takes us, comes in and snaps us from the jaw of death. He's the hope in the resurrection. And Micah knew that he could trust me, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I can trust my Saviour, that this life is not all that there is, that there is a hope that goes beyond the present and the now. And there is nothing that can snatch us from that hope because Christ's blood is sufficient for us. 
That little boy that didn't know me, that didn't know that I was there, that I had the, the skills and the ability to care for him, that I would care for him as if it, he were my own son while he was on that table. He didn't understand that, and so he was fearful and he fled. I'm telling you, if you are scared of God because you see his commandments and think, I don't match up to those, how can I come into his presence? You are missing the point. You have not seen the Savior as he is. He says, that is the point. You cannot meet my standards, so come to me because I have met them for you. Don't walk out of here knowing. Don't walk out of here thinking, you know what, I'm just going to keep trying myself. Walk out of here with the peace of knowing that it is finished. That is what Christ said on the cross as he died. He said, it is finished once and for all. I have paved the way for you. So I want to invite you to all stand with me. And we're going to pray. We're going to say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the great kingly high priest. That you are the one that is finished once and for all. That you alone, Lord, that you loved us enough to send your son for us. And thank you, Lord, for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you that you held nothing back from us. That though we stand before the law utterly condemned, you do not condemn us, but you came at one of us. And you said, I will be their sin. I will be their sacrifice. I will take it all on myself so that, God, you can look at them and see them as the righteousness of Christ in whom there is no condemnation. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to rejoice in that, to know that, to take this guilt and this burden off those that are walking around, Lord, feeling guilt-ridden when you have already paid the price for that. We just pray this and thank you in Jesus' name as we take your communion. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.